0: We've got to turn this around quickly. Right now. We've got to turn this around really quickly.
1: On KSL Plus. The bigger the area, the bigger the problem, the more challenging. Another look at the growing concerns over a shrinking lake.
0: Everybody wants to work together on this.
1: I'm Matt Rascone. And this week, my conversation with my colleague Dan Spindle. What we're learning about the state of the Great Salt Lake. How Utah is responding. And why it should matter to you. And I know this isn't as exciting as some of your other shoots where you're actually at the Great Salt Lake, but...
2: Uh... <laughs> I'm pretty excited to be sitting here at my desk. This is okay. It's such a massive, well-known you know, staple of the Intermountain West, the, the Great Salt Lake, where, especially with Utahns who've lived here forever, they've lived here for generations, they know what they know or what they think they know about the lake. And, you know, oftentimes it's one of those environmental or, or climate based kind of discussions where people shrug their shoulders and they go "Well, what am I supposed to do in my daily life I'm there I'm I'm working and I'm raising my family and then there's the Great Salt Lake What, what do I do with this issue if there are issues
0: and it's just the water is full of dead brine fly larva and pupa just death everywhere it's terrible
2: Bonnie Baxter talks a lot about death these days
0: this microbial is probably hundreds of years old and it's just dead.
2: She has reason to be pessimistic about the prospect of a healthy, thriving Great Salt Lake.
0: We are at the tipping point for this
2: ecosystem. So we're trying to tell stories that are uh, pretty varied in scope. From public spaces and parks to your backyard, Kentucky bluegrass and fescue provide a green hue for much of the inner mountain West, but Utahns may have to start losing the lawns soon.
1: The rubber really hits the road in changing our landscapes the way we landscape.
2: And trying to tell stories that pique people's interest, but also don't weigh people down under the expectation that there's something that you must be doing now. And if not, all is lost and it's all over and we're all going to (laughs) die. So that's that's kind of what we've been trying to do. And so with the variety of stories, it's funny. I'm a newcomer to Utah of the last few years. Um, My mom grew up here. So I kind of asked her, Starting off, you know, what do you what do you think of the Great Salt Lake? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. She said we went swimming out there a few times as kids in the '60s, and that's it. And we knew it was a stinky place. <laughs> and that's honestly that's the that's the take of a lot of people. Their relationship to the lake is either a negative one or it's non-existent. Uh, for me, as a as a transplant to Utah, it was non-existent. Something that I I learned in covering these stories over the last six plus eight plus months is that the relationship with the lake and Utahns has changed greatly over the last few decades and over the last, you know, century and a half. But when our most recent ancestors rolled into the territory in July of 1847, there was no question they were a lot like us. They'd rather be at the beach than building a settlement. Brigham
1: Young, Orson Pratt, Wilford Woodruff all came out here for the first documented recreational swim in Great Salt Lake.
2: So I guess the main focus would have been, okay, how do we boil this down? We have these issues with, we're in a mega drought, there's climate change going on, there's diversion of water, we don't have enough water, we're in a desert to begin with. And the average person who's, you know, mowing their lawn and watering their lawn and watering their flowers and the tomato plants, they go, okay, so what should I do?
1: The traditional style of landscaping where we use mostly turf grass can no longer be done in order for us to provide a sustainable water supply. That is a thing of the past.
2: Bart Forsyth with the Jordan Valley Water Conservation District doesn't mince words over what it'll take to make the Salt Lake Valley sustainable. How can we tell different varied stories from different sources and different experts to to help folks, one, connect with the lake, and two, figure out if there are solutions moving forward?
1: Right. Well, and as you're talking to these people over the last you know you mentioned 7 8 months why why should why should the average person care about what's happening there well and that's
2: that's a good question honestly it is because i'm i'm an average person i'm i kind of try and put myself in these situ- situations you know you're you're a dad raising your kids you've got school concerns you've got so many issues that that are on your plate the great salt lake seems like this giant even if there are major issues that you can agree with and and understand you say well what what can we do about it so we started the very first story that that i did we went down to emory county
3: What it is, it's a solution to a problem. Whether the rancher has a shortage of water problem, a shortage of acre problem.
2: Lee Magnuson is talking about sustainability he wants to bring to the most arid corners of Utah in the form of new technology using hydroponic grow systems by HydroGreen. That's the plant time. Lee's big brother Rod is way ahead of him. And this requires no soil? No soil, no fertilization. No fertilization? No. Simply
4: applications of some water. The energy of the seed.
2: I found that, OK, this is a family that you can relate to because it's it's a Utah family that's trying to run their own business. Um, you know, not everybody has acreage in, in Utah. Not everybody grows wheat and, 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 you know, alfalfa and that kind of thing. But their idea was, here's the typical what you do in ranching and farming. Here's where we're trying to shift in order to conserve. That's mm-hmm. all grain. This red wheat went from this yesterday to this just five days later, and it's almost ready to go. This will become feed for livestock within hours.
4: And then this is all palatable. The ruts, everything, they eat at all.
2: Rod tells me this beautiful green growth can supplement some of the nutritional needs of his 1,200 head of cattle. Some of the other ones that we did, again, to answer the question of why should, should people care, the farming thing is one thing. And people might say, well, that doesn't relate to me because, you know, I, I, I have nothing to do with that. I'm, I'm a, an urban centered person. So I went with, um, with Dr. Kevin Perry, who's the head of the Atmospheric Sciences Department of the U.
4: And we are now at least four miles away from any water in Farmington miles. Bay.
2: And he goes out and he rides these bikes, fat bikes, onto what is uh, Farmington Bay It's really bay and name only because there's no water there.
4: So here we have a place with a very thin, shallow crust. It's very fragile. When the wind comes along, it starts to pulverize this.
2: And we rode out from the the Syracuse Roy area out onto the bay to find these uh, dust hotspots that he's identified. And he says that um,
4: you've got this exposed area underneath, which is a... Incredible dust source. And so the dust is dangerous when the concentrations are high, regardless of what it's made out of.
2: Dangerous now to the young, the elderly, and those with breathing issues. Potentially deadly down the road, as this dust is filled with cancer-causing, naturally occurring arsenic.
4: Ten years ago, we weren't talking about dust plumes coming off of the Great Salt Lake. The
2: Great Salt Lake, for example, um, back in the 80s, when it was reaching its peak water level, was, you know upwards of 3000 square miles of surface area. And as of right now in our mega drought of the last 20 plus years, it's something like eight, 900 square miles. So mm-hmm. considerably less water, these exposed areas, he has charted on a bike um, just to be, you talk about being on the ground and being out like doing actual research. He's been out there himself kind of charting these dust hotspots that become uh, fragile where it's not packed down as it should be holding the dust in, but it turns into these these dust potential dust hotspots that again, he's theorizing if we continue at this rate of uh, contraction of lake water and recession of lake water, this is how much more we can expect these, these, these dust pockets to appear. And if that happens, um, you know, the arsenic that naturally occurs, this heavy metal that naturally occurs in the lake bed, it gets mixed up in the air. It's bad for
4: everybody. It's my hypothesis that the longer that the lake bed is exposed, these areas will grow.
2: Now, his point was, look, maybe even if you don't want to think that way and think, okay, generations to come could deal with cancer. Right now, we know we're heading into the inversion season, November, December, January, uh, February, you know, where it kind of eases up finally. But the, the air quality is just horrific here in our valleys along the Wasatch Front. So. That's a thing that can re- help people relate as well. My air quality, my children, my, my future health. Um, and so that was a different one. But again, visually speaking, the great thing is um, KSL is actually giving us my photographer and myself um, and I've gone out with a photographer named Megan Thackeray, who she's just a phenomenal visual storyteller. And so we've been able to take the time necessary. You know, you get maybe a minute and a half to tell the story on a day to day basis. And we're given four to five minutes. Mostly because we've asked for forgiveness and not permission. And the, the stories have just ended up that long. And we kind of try and slip them into the uh, the later newscasts. And they've gone for them because we as a station feel that it's an important issue. So um, again, Dr. Perry was another one that we went out with. Um, Bonnie Baxter.
0: We are at the tipping point for this ecosystem.
2: She's head of what's called the Great Salt Lake Institute. Uh, and a scientist in her own right and researcher. And she's been going out to the Great Salt Lake almost weekly for, I think, two decades. Yeah. A few years back, she co-authored a dark satirical obituary of our massive saline staple, penning this untimely cause of death. The combination of terminal dehydration and high fever killed the Great Salt Lake, she said. And had we adequately funded her health care in time, we may not be mourning her death today.
0: Since the lake has been in this perilous state, I've been getting emails and letters and phone calls constantly.
2: I'm talking to these experts who they really know what they're talking about. I don't. I I don't know about the lake except for what I hear from them. She told me one thing could take the lake off life support.
0: The one thing is the big thing. Get more water to the lake. And there's a lot of things that have to happen to do that. I believe there's enough water in the watershed to get water to this lake. I do believe that. I would be willing to write, to change the obituary to a lifetime achievement award if we see progress in five years.
2: So we're trying to gather all this information from as many of these sources, these experts as possible in climatology and meteorology and geology and and
0: get some stuff out. These are sampling supplies and instruments.
2: Carrie Franz, who is um, a Weber State biology geochemistry professor. It's
0: alive. This here is
2: alive. Green proof of a living ecosystem just centimeters beneath the surface.
0: Every month I come out here, I characterize the environment and also um, take samples of the microbialites to monitor how healthy they are.
2: When we went out there, we were walking along the shore that is now receded so far out that she's she's walking out to these spots as opposed to swimming. And she was swimming this year. You know, it's not as if this was a, uh, you know, five years ago issue. It's that the water's receding so quickly. It's getting the attention of these folks who have been out there year after year after year. Just how salty can it get? And for how long before life on the Great Salt Lake is choked out of existence? The ocean, for context, is about 3.5% salinity. The Great Salt Lake would thrive between about 5 and 15%.
0: The more salt that's in the sample, the more the light bends, the more it refracts.
2: Today's samples from White Rock Bay, well over 18%. We know this because the instrument Kerry uses only measures that high, meaning life here cannot survive at this level of salinity.
0: We're at this point where we can't wait any longer. We can't let the lake continue dropping without seeing some really severe consequences.
2: shocked when i say things like oh so do you come out here to antelope island often and he, oh yeah probably about five days a week since we moved here in 96 <laughs> like, wow. oh so so there you go there's a relatable person who is a hiker and just uh, you know some might go hiking and you know bountiful the mueller park trail and that's their trail or somewhere in little or big cottonwood canyons he hikes at antelope island that's his his place so for him I was kind of asking more, not the scientific approach, but the emotional approach. When you see these things, what do you think as a person who uses the trail, right? Not somebody who's out there necessarily charting and marking and and sampling and testing. It's like
4: uh, a little
2: biosphere.
0: You do have to worry about how much water we are using. It's easy to not feel a lot of importance about something that you're not looking at every day. But we look at it every day and, and we see it happening and we see the consequences.
2: I mean, ultimately, what why should people care? It could be your health, right? It could be the health of your children, long term or short term. Or it could just be this uh, economic draw to the state, which the Great Salt Lake is. This great inland salt sea that has existed forever. One of, one of the focuses that I do in this latest story is, is the fact that it was called, um, you know, back when the pioneers were were arriving, this Dead Sea. And they drew a lot of parallels. Obviously, that's why they named the river that led to, between Utah Lake and the Great Salt Lake, they named it the Jordan River. Because they were uh, drawing these parallels to the children of Israel and, and going into the desert and finding their promised land. The Great Salt Lake, though, as the Dead Sea, I think it's put the perception that it, it really, truly is dead. And it's something that is not a, a living... Kind of breathing organism. Boy, oh, boy, was I! You know, my my perception was changed, and I think the perception of everyone would be changed as these scientists take more people out to the Great Salt Lake to the water's edge and see the living organisms that are there. Yes, it's it's brine shrimp that that can live there primarily because of the salinity of the water, but even that is in danger of extinction. So it could be economics. It could be biology and chemistry and kind of the the love of the environment. It could be your health, the health of your family. All of those things will impact our state, whether we like it or not. And so if there is a way that we can can do something, that's what we're trying to bring about with these stories, is just to try to zero in on what can we do, if anything, to help out. What about cities and what about developers and property managers?
1: Almost 100% of our turf is coming out this year. We're doing it as we speak.
2: David Jenkins is a property manager for the Gardner Company and he says the topic of water conservation landed front and center in Salt Lake and Utah counties of late and all of their projects moving forward will have native plants and grasses, no typical
1: bluegrass turf anymore.
4: Since we started just tracking all this over the last couple years and really paying attention to water levels, we just made that decision internally.
1: Well, and I was just surprised at how far reaching the impacts were. I mean, you mentioned the air, the health, the economic impact. Um, You know, uh, we've done several stories about the migratory birds, uh, you know, the water itself becoming more salty, you know, as and and that affecting the brine shrimp, but even just things like, you know, our ski season uh, and the amount of snow we get and things that maybe people wouldn't uh, typically associate with the Great Salt Lake
2: yeah and dr. Perry told me um again, what I like about these these folks, these scientific um you know experts, is they're really not sensationalizing anything they're not overblowing anything. I think sometimes when people consume that science news and especially when you bring in climate change and global warming, everyone's got a political opinion that is is pretty entrenched. Uh, they are bringing to us these very real world examples and just very fact-based. There's no there's no politics in it. As far as the the lake effect snow, you know, I was expecting him to say something like, oh, we will have no snow. Well, he said, actually, it accounts for eight to ten percent, perhaps of an increase to the snow. And I thought, okay, that's a big deal. It's not the be all and end all, but it's a big deal. He also said he believes that the mega drought and, and uh, climate change are two separate issues. The mega drought that we're in, the main problem with that is that we're at year 22, 23 of a mega drought that if you look through history of the basin, the Great Basin here in the Western United States, mega droughts have lasted anywhere from, uh, on average, 30 to 70 years. Hmm. So wow. the, the 70 is the extreme, it's not the norm. So we could be wrapping this mega drought up hopefully, or not. I mean, we could be another 10 years, 20 years into a mega drought, which would spell extinction for the ecosystem of the Great Salt Lake as we know it. So, um, but again, the snowpack is a real issue. He, He believes though, climatologically, we will, he said, actually, this is a surprising, shocking factor, because we consider the mega drought and we go, oh, and we are so dry, which we are, But he said, you look at the precipitation amounts from the last 150 years, and we have not fluctuated hardly at all, is what he said. And he believes that the rain will return in the coming decades. We will in Northern Utah, not Southern Utah, I said Southern Utah will be uh, pretty devastated by climate change uh, with heat rising and and less water. However, he said Northern Utah is kind of on that cusp where we actually will have about the same amount of precipitation, we'll just have more rain than snow. So really what it will boil down to if we don't have the the lake either to give us as much snow as we can possibly get for that snowpack, we're going to have to change the way we think about water retention and diversion and storing the water. The reservoir system has been phenomenal since, again, those settlers came in the in the 1800s and were able to live in the desert. Right. But you got a lot of places that are growing to our south in Phoenix, um, Las Vegas, uh California, you know, the the demands on the water system, that's a different, you know, northern Utah versus southern Utah. Those are different areas. Colorado River system is one, uh, obviously, for the southern part of the state. And in the northern part of the state, we rely on, again, the snowpack. Um, but it's all kind of the same idea of conservation and having a mindset of conservation, even if let's say we have a great year right now is, is a perfect example outside. It's going to snow today. Great, heavy, wet snow, bringing a lot of water. And yet, even if we have a great year, next year it could be worse than the previous three years, right? So uh, we need to have a, a conservation mindset.
0: This all used to be grass. Our public works department ripped it out and uses the examples of what we offer in our rebate programs.
2: Rachel Van Cleve works for the city of South Jordan, which is trying to set an example for homeowners and developers offering incentives through rebates and free, more desert-friendly options to swap out their currently thirsty landscaping.
0: When they rip out turf and they put in elements like curbing, concrete, rock, that type of stuff.
2: That is a nice byproduct, I think, of these stories, at least, just to bring about the idea of better conservation right uh less Kentucky bluegrass out there to soak up all all of the uh the water mm. fewer diversions, and that's where the laws of the state have changed as well. The lawmakers um this last legislative session of twenty two it was known as the year of water, where they passed all of these um these laws that govern the way that we view water in our state. But there's a hierarchy of actions that can be taken from those that are relatively easy
3: and less expensive and then those that are gonna take a long time and are very expensive, but we can't afford to wait. You know, the legislature invested nearly half a billion dollars this last year in water conservation and water projects that will directly help water users and in particular, the Great Salt Lake, but we're just getting started.
2: Over the, the, the decades, Water was seen as being wasted if it arrived at the Great Salt Lake because it's a dead lake. It's a terminal lake. There is no, you know, it's becomes salty because it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays there and dies. Um, and so, if you lost those that that valuable water to the Great Salt Lake, it was seen as a waste. And also, uh, it was a lose it or use it, men- use it or lose it mentality where you know, just like kind of the federal budget in different departments. If you don't use your money, you get less money the next year. Right. If, if if you didn't use all your water as a farmer and a rancher, you would lose that for the next year. So they would just use their water to do various things that weren't, uh, weren't efficient. Um, so they're, they're prioritizing efficiency on the state level now and trying to work toward a, a better understanding of the, the limited water supply that we have and yet allowing it to, uh, you know, biologically, environmentally, help the lake as well.
1: What are some of the solutions that um, that you're hearing proposed or that the state, I know that that was a big focus uh, last legislative yeah. session, is working on?
2: Well, and that that's where some of the, the frustration might come in because, again, I look at it from the standpoint of a, a regular person living in their neighborhood and going, okay, look, I, I cut back on my lawn and my lawn looked pretty dead this summer, so did that help? <laughs> and the answer is maybe.
4: This truly is an all-hands-on-deck moment. And I would make a call out to every citizen of the state of Utah to do your part. Joel Ferry, executive director of the Utah DNR, says every gallon matters, and many Utahns act that way. Utahns collectively saved nine billion gallons of water during the summer through voluntary conservation. Conservation has to be our first choice across the board, period. Not only does it have to be our first choice, it's it's actually the most cost-effective choice. And so before we get to the to where we're spending tens of billions of dollars building pipes somewhere, let's let's do conservation.
2: It would be great, and, and we talk to these different water conservation districts um, that talk about, well, we saved this X amount of water, these many billions of gallons. Wonderful, okay, good, but will it solve the problem? Not necessarily. I was talking to uh, Dr. Franz out at the lake um, a couple of weeks ago.
0: I'm really worried about. Fixing things right now because we're at this tipping point.
2: And she said, "X amount of conservation, water conserved, water saved." And she says that equals about two inches of water out here. And what we were looking at, standing among these microbialites that have been exposed, which are these biological engines of the lake, um, they had never been exposed in the in the 150 years, 175 years that that people have that that you know modern settlers have been here. Um, so that was a bit concerning. She says, that's good. But two feet of water went out this year, not inches. So if we're losing 24 and replacing two, okay, that's fine. So that's those are the conservation efforts. I mean, I know charting the way that that water makes its way ultimately to the Great Salt Lake, that is an experiment that is ongoing.
4: We need to explore every option. I mean, we need to explore options of going to the, you know, the Midwestern states, if they have excess water, if we can enter into contracts with them. He says that's a long shot, but they need to brainstorm. In a series of panel discussions, key players in Utah water policy talked about everything from more ways to conserve water in agriculture, businesses, and our homes, to more creative and costly solutions like cloud seeding, and bringing water from out of state. A lot of the low-hanging fruit is getting close to being picked. Uh, This is going to get trickier. It's going to get harder. uh, But what I think will make the difference over the
2: long term is we continue to see Utahns do what they've done this year. Really what it it boils down to as well is uh, diversions. You know, a lot of these diversions where you think, oh, well, this water goes from the Provo River, into utah lake utah lake ultimately that's where it starts to come to the great salt lake through the jordan river and yet they're diverting a lot of that that water upstream and the the same with the bear and the same with the weber so development is going to be a big thing and really It it really is a change in in the mindset.
1: I use my yard more than I used to before when it was all grass because now I have activity zones and gathering areas and things that I didn't have before.
2: Clint Larson with Ivory Homes effectively paved the way for the home builder to offer more than just turf templates. He told me they save 56,000 gallons of water per home now using native plants, which will add up to more than 100 million gallons saved since 2020 by the end of this year. And going green with efficiency doesn't mean ditching the grass altogether just scaling back to the bare essentials for any outdoor
1: space. People understand why we're doing it. They want to help, and so they don't push back as much. They don't complain as much. We compare a valley that's full of turf grass versus a valley that's done water-wise landscaping. Naturally, more water is going to be freed up for the lake.
2: And so development, commercial residential development will be a big part of it and not diverting all of those 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 sources of water in those, you know, higher up kind of headwaters um, and us as residents who who are watering lawns and things. So that's a good part for our mindset to be more conservation minded but it's going to be the developers as well. It's going to be industrial. It's going to be agricultural. A lot of people talk to me about, look how much agriculture uses. Agriculture is anywhere from 70 to 90% of the state. Where's the balance and, and what is the agricultural responsibility?
3: Well, the, there there is a balance and there's no question that agriculture has to play a huge role in this. And agriculture knows that. Um, we, we work with those associations all the time. Um, we do farming, uh, you know, I'm a farmer myself. We know how important that is and when we- we're in a drought situation, nobody, nobody loses more water than agriculture. We had a 75% reduction last year. So agriculture is always the first to cut. I I would also add that agriculture is the great preserver when it comes to land. What's happening so often is we're losing our farmland in record numbers, and we're converting that to houses for people. And when they do that, those water shares then go to that development um, where they can now use that water for, for people. So look, we've been losing farmland and not improving our water situation. So the, the farmers out there are, are a little dubious of that charge. You also have to understand the way water flows um, in, in this state, and, and every drainage is very different. You could eliminate 75% of the farms in the state, and none of that water goes to the Great Salt Lake, right? None of that has anything to do with the Salt Lake Valley. Um, the, the problem in the Salt Lake Valley isn't farming or, or agriculture, right? It's, it's the number of people that we have that are moving here. But agriculture has to do more. But have to remind people all of the time that um, food is just as important as water, and you can't get food without water. Um, so you 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 can't take water completely away from agriculture. But
2: now, um, state lawmakers really have hyper focused on how do we alter the laws to incentivize conservation, both in agriculture, industrial, and residential commercial building. I mean, all of that's going to have to work together. Um, to, to make kind of a massive conservation push. And uh, there's a lot of positivity out there, though. This this summer, especially when we had the hottest summer in the history of, of Salt Lake, you could have said, man, we didn't do well because people were using more water because it was hotter, when actually uh, I think every major uh, water conservation district was reporting good numbers in that people really were were cutting back.
1: The way we're covering this and working with people we would typically think of as competitors On this collaborative and giving ourselves, you know, a lot more time, you know, two, three times more than we usually have for a typical story in our newscast and then dedicating someone to it. You know, we don't usually have beat reporters, uh, you know, at our TV station Um, shows just how important we think it is. But then I think it's because of what we're hearing from the experts and the people who really know that, uh, hey, we, we have to work together on this. I mean, we're sharing content with other stations. Yeah. You know, you, this just doesn't happen on other stories.
2: It, it is a, a little bit odd.
1: And at the very beginning, we had this meeting to kick off the
2: collaborative and it, it was basically like, okay, everybody have to leave your your competitive bone and your ego at the door. So the cool thing about that is when we tell a story, I feel like there's so much that you can uh, augment your your whatever you're consuming. If you're watching a story that my story might last four and a half minutes. And then you could go take and look in the Deseret News or the Salt Lake Tribune, and you can read an extensive, you know, print media, digital journalism is, is much more extensive. Um, and then whatever uh, our competitors are, are putting out there as well, visually speaking. And it's all at this at this great website called greatsaltlakenews.org.
1: This was grand. This was massive architecture. And it was meant to be imposing. It was meant to be this worldwide feature.
2: They a couple of stories i didn't mention are the, the stories about the great salt air that we did uh that are more just historical in nature and i, I had somebody make a nasty comment like, ah, why are you even slow news day i guess why are you covering this story about something that doesn't even exist anymore and i said well I, the main reason is to find out how Utahns in the past connected with the lake to see if that can happen again are we going to go quote unquote bathing out in the lake again no nobody's going to do that because we go to the mountains there's an interstate highway system. People drive, people fly with ease. So it's not like 1896, yeah. where you go out to the big boardwalk there. And
1: there's piles that are way out there. That was Salt Air One, where if you were swimming, it was a deck you could lay out on and right We're not gonna do that. But the relationship they had with the lake
2: was, was a very tangible one. And so can we have that tangible relationship with the lake again to well, save the lake?
1: The piles that were driven in 1892, just before construction. Chris
2: Merritt, who's a great, um, state historian and he says if you love something you will take care of it and preserve it and save it so if we can connect to our history regarding the lake which is still a tangible thing we will lean towards saving it whatever that means and we'll learn together how we save it so it's been a very cool collaborative effort yes to see everybody joining together and it gives you an idea of just how
1: important it is how critical it is the words that are often attached to the, this story is disastrous, unprecedented, historic levels. Yeah. Yeah, And, uh, and so that it gives you a sense of uh, just how seriously people are taking it. How, how much longer does this last? How much longer are you, are you staying on this? What's, what's the timeline look like? What are you hearing from people?
2: There's a different answer to those different questions. The, the collaborative itself um, it's almost like starting up, um, some sort of a gy- you know, like if you start up a gyroscope or a top or something, if it doesn't have any resistance, it just keeps spinning and going forever. That's this, this effort for the Great Salt Collaborative, the hope at the very beginning was let's start off this collaborative effort. And then once we get through that initial year, get it picked up in perpetuity. I mean, just forever, like whether every single news organization belongs to this collaborative forever, that, that's up to them. But the yeah. collaborative itself, making itself an own independent nonprofit, where, you know, you're raising money for this effort to tell stories, and, and, and have researchers do what they do. That's kind of, I think, the ultimate idea is where can it go from here. And it's this, it's part of this organization that does, again, what we call solutions based journalism to kind of jumpstart or ignite an issue around a specific area and one of the reasons they they wanted to focus on the great salt lake is because it's such a massive right it's the largest inland body of water in the west and it's um it affects millions of people literally millions of people so uh yeah it could go forever
4: (laughs) i was uh seriously considering uh, a future name change for salt lake city to dust lake city because that was the future that we were going to be facing.
2: That dire designation isn't how Kevin feels now with more than a dozen laws and state statutes put in place just this session to address the water crisis. And it's not just about the dust. It's the fragile ecosystem. It's millions of migratory birds that stop and feed here in northern Utah. And it's about generations to come, believing that this is still the place to put down roots and raise a family.
4: You know, we still have limitations. We have to have water to survive. We have to have water to grow crops. Without water, the population carrying capacity would have to be reduced.
2: I try to be very careful about not sensationalizing the problem while conveying what these experts want people to know about things that they have never seen before the unprecedented nature of what we're seeing out at the lake and how we as regular people in our daily lives can make small changes. Not only that, if it comes down to lawmakers, well then talk to your lawmakers, get involved with your, you know, all politics is local, your, your, your neighborhood, your town, your city, your County, and then move out from there and, and our state. So can Utah be a leader in water conservation instead of being, I mean, we were held up as kind of the poster child for water wasters uh, this year.
3: Seriously, with the worst example being
2: Utah. Home of both the U- is it a fair designation to say, Utah, what's going on with you guys? You guys just waste water out there.
3: <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think it's a fair designation, but, but I think it is a fair criticism that we haven't been as effective as we should have been in the past when it comes to conserving water. It's a paradigm shift for everyone that lives here, and we are seeing that happen in real time. Um, last year was the best year we have ever had for conservation.
2: You know, I, I sat down with the governor and interviewed him and, and asked him directly about a lot of these things.
3: You know, we just hit a record low in the Great Salt Lake last year. And then we, we just hit a, a, another record low this year. But I asked people, what was the record low be, before that? And it was uh, it was 1963. Most people have no idea that in 1963 it was almost as low as it is right now. So so it, it just I think it helps us put into a little bit of a perspective what we're dealing with and how important that is that we, that we save this lake, but also that as climate patterns change, and right now we're in a dry climate pattern um, that could shift over time. We we don't know. We're hopeful, but We have to do everything possible to save that lake right now.
2: It really boils down to, can we lead on this issue and can regular people feel like they're making a difference because it's something that actually is making a difference, not just feel that way and go, you know, oh, I feel like I'm making a difference with with water levels, but actually have a change in mindset so that we're all working together to preserve this beautiful uh, state that we all love so much.
4: If you ask, will the dust really impact me? It will impact everybody from Tremonton to Brigham City to Ogden, all the way down to Salt Lake City and Provo. Eventually the rains will return. But the question is, will this ecosystem still be alive when those rains return? And we have the power to make choices to put more water into the lake now when it's needed the most.
1: That does it for us this week on KSL Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. We'll see you again after Thanksgiving.